0: Good morning Jubilee, it's uh, it's good to have you all with us and uh, if you've got your Bibles with you it'd be great if you had them to hand. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ezra chapter 7 and 8 this morning but um, as we start I just want to ask um, what possession would you grab if you could grab one thing from your home if say it was burning down or something and you could grab one possession, what would it be? Would it be maybe a photo or a Um, a picture, or maybe it would be a piece of jewellery or something that had some sentimental value. Maybe it would be your mobile phone, because we can't live without that, or maybe a laptop because you want to take your work with you, or maybe the family pet. I think in my household there would be uh, a couple of people who might grab their football card collection to take with them. But I think if that was the case, you'd probably grab something that was of particular value to you. And today, as we continue our series in the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we get to meet Ezra. And it seems to me that he was passionate about one thing in particular. And he is, Ezra is the man who led the second return out of exile from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And we've heard over the past few weeks about the first return under Zerubbabel and what he achieved. And Ezra is about 50 to 70 years later and he takes the second exile, so the second return back to Jerusalem. And it seems like he carried with him a copy of the word of God, a copy of the Torah as it was then, roughly equivalent to our first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it seemed like as he was going up out of exile, that's what he grabbed. And I think Ezra was passionate about the word of God. And that presents me with a challenge when I came to look at these passages. Would my response be the same? Would I grab the word of God? Is that the most important thing to me? So we'll get into a bit of that in due course, but I imagine that as this series has unfolded, you've been waiting for this moment, the moment where you get to meet the person who wrote the book of Ezra. So here we go. Let's meet Ezra. Chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 1 through to 10. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra... Son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shallum, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra. Came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. In the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. And to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. We're going to be looking at two whole chapters today. We're going to be looking at chapters 7 and 8 of Ezra. So I'm only going to be able to give an overview. I will be setting you some homework to uh, read over it and look at the detail. Um, We're going to cover quite a lot of ground. But before we get into it, I'd just love us to pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And as we open it now, In your presence, would you teach each one of us? Would you stir our hearts to focus our attention afresh on you? Father, I pray that you would anoint my words. I pray that you would open each of our hearts to hear from you. And God, that we would be transformed as we sit under the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, as we go through these couple of chapters, I'm going to pick out a few aspects of. Ezra's life and character, and uh, under a, a few, few different headings. And the first thing I want to pick up on is Ezra's devotion. So it's, we meet him in verse 6, and it, it says that he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. Um, which, uh, I love that phrase, well-versed in the law of Moses. He knew it inside out. And in verse 10, there's a bit more detail. So it says, he devoted himself, or the um, NASB and ESV versions uh, of the Bible say, set his heart on the study of the law of the Lord, the observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And so there seem to be three things that he's devoted himself to in terms of this, the word of God, the study of it, the doing of it, and the teaching of it. And I think of those three things, two are relatively easy, and one is quite hard. And the two things that are easy are studying it and teaching it. And I think the thing that's hard is doing it. And I love the fact that that's sandwiched in the middle. You see, obeying is hard work. It's easy to do these other things, easy to read, easy to talk about it, but to do it is a challenge. And yet, in our mindset, it's kind of separated out. In the Hebrew mindset, to study and know the Word of God meant to do it. These things aren't separated. If you don't do it, then you clearly don't know it. But Ezra is committed to, devoted to the Word of God. And that's why I think he grabbed a copy <laughs> and went up with him. Because that was his blueprint, that was his mandate. And it's that commitment to scripture that that it's that commitment to scripture that makes him the ideal person for the task that God's called him to do. And it's that devotion to scripture which fuels his actions. So that's the first thing is Ezra's devotion, it's devotion to the Word of God, to studying, doing and teaching. The word of God. And the, the second thing we see is Ezra's task. He is given a mammoth task. He's commissioned by the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, to go to Jerusalem, to take a group with him and go to Jerusalem and do a whole load of things. And we've got his, this historical record, this letter that forms the rest of chapter seven. I'm not going to read it now, but verses 11 through to 26 are this letter from the king telling Ezra, this is what I'm sending you to do. And he tells him in verse 13 to gather a group of people to go up to Jerusalem. And he tells him in verse 14 to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of the Lord. And he says, which is in your hand. Now that could be a phrase. Or it could be, I like to think that Ezra just walked around with these scrolls all the time and came saying, see there, it's in your hand. But whatever it means, he's committed to it. He's given unlimited resources. This is amazing. So if you read through this letter, you'll see that silver and gold are freely given. You'll see that money is given. You'll see that Uh, Down in verse 22, he's got talents of silver, cores of wheat, baths of wine, baths of oil um, and salt without limit. I mean, it is amazing and that is all given so that worship could be re-established in the temple. That was the purpose it was given for. And just in case that wasn't enough, the king also said to him, I'd like you to appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to the people, in verse 25. So he's given the kind of social rebuilding to do, because he's taking people with him. He's given the religious rebuilding to do, as he's re-establishing worship in this newly built temple from Zerubbabel. And he has to reestablish the legal framework for the nation as well. An absolutely massive job. And that's his task. But surely, surely, you would only want someone to be tasked with doing all of that if they knew inside out and did and lived according to God's principles. Surely you'd only want that sort of person to be in charge of this. And so Ezra's the ideal man for the job. So that's his task, and that's laid out in chapter 7. And then uh, in chapter 8, we see what he actually does. We see his actions. And uh, I'm just going to read the last couple of verses of uh, chapter 7. It says, "Praise be." This is Ezra's response to the letter from the king. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. And who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then we launch into chapter 8 where he outlines what happens. And so Ezra immediately gathers this group of exiles together. And verses uh, 1 to 14 of chapter 8 describe the families of these approximately 1,500 men who go up with their families and children. So we're talking about a company of about 5,000 people going with Ezra up to Jerusalem. And he gathers them at the canal in verse 15. And while they're at the canal, they're having a little camp out there while they're getting ready to go on up to Jerusalem. These 5,000 people. And Ezra spends some time checking through the people and he realises that there are no Levites there. And so he calls for the Levites to come. And they come and they come ready to serve. And once they've arrived, he's then there in verse 21, he proclaims a fast so that they can humble themselves before God and pray. And so he says in verse 23, we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. So he gathers the people, he notices there are no Levites, he calls some to join them and then he calls the nation or calls that group of 5,000 people to fast and pray. He then commissions the Levites by giving them all this wealth which has been entrusted to him, this gold, silver, wine, oil, etc. He gives it to the Levites and says, that's your responsibility. And then he leads them off. To home. So verse 31, on the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to Jerusalem. And they got to Jerusalem. Four months it took. We read that earlier, verses 8 and 9 in chapter 7. Four-month journey across the desert from civilization to who knows what Jerusalem's state is going to be when they get there. And when they get there, in verse 35... Then the exiles who returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel and they get bulls and rams and lambs and they have sin offerings of goats and they sacrifice to the Lord. So Ezra's actions were quite widespread, quite varied. How did he know to do this? Well, I think he knew to do this because the pattern is laid out In God's word. And Ezra, of course, had studied this. Genesis to Deuteronomy are programmatic for him in implementing this in Jerusalem. And I'd argue they're programmatic for us as well. Obviously fulfilled in the New Testament. But they lay out a blueprint for what life is to look like for us too. So, for example, why did he know that having Levites was important? Well, because the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers give great detail about how the Levites were called to be priests, set aside to play that role. They were then in charge of the temple and all its operations. They were there to be mediators of the covenant between them and the people and God. You can't reestablish worship if you don't have Levites. So Ezra knew he needed some to go with him. Why did he call the people to fast and pray? Well, he knew all about the sovereignty of God. How God's hand had moved these great men and women throughout history to step out in faith and into the sovereignty of God's plans. Noah, saved through an ark. Joseph, thrown into prison in Egypt and then elevated to prime minister to bring salvation to the world. The people of Israel led out under Moses from Exodus. Ezra knew that the people had to be in a place of humility before God. And so he called them to fast and pray and petition God to do it again. How was it that he had the, the resources to lead the people, 5,000 people across a desert? Well, it's been done before. Moses He did it with 2 million people, so 5,000 is nothing. That's probably what Ezra was thinking. See how scripture is our pattern. And how knowing it builds faith to take action for the things that God calls us to. And over future chapters, we'll see the story of Ezra unfold. We'll see him deal with issues of sin and holiness. We'll see him lead the people in covenant renewal as laid out in Deuteronomy. We'll see him teaching the word of God to the next generation, again as explained in importance in Deuteronomy. Everything that Ezra did was fueled by his knowledge of the word of God and his devotion to it. But as well, I feel at this point I need to throw in a word of caution. I don't want to step on the toes of next week, but, Let's not fall into the trap of exalting Ezra to perfection or infallibility. He, in my opinion, made mistakes. In due course, I think he falls into the trap of applying the word of God legalistically with a lack of grace. Just because he knew the word of God didn't mean he got everything right. So let's be careful with this. But, What we can say about him is that he was committed to living according to God's revelation and he was devoted to the word of God. So we've seen his devotion. We've seen the task that he was set. We've seen the actions that he took in the light of that task. And I think what emerges is Ezra's courage to be commissioned by the king of Persia, to go back to Jerusalem and establish all that he was asked to establish, took great courage. And in verse 28 of chapter 7, we read, Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered these men to go up with me. So why was he able to take courage? He was able to take courage. His own testimony is that it was because the hand of God was on him. He was a man who knew God's presence. And this phrase isn't just a one-off there. It's littered throughout these chapters. So if you look back at verse 6, which we read earlier, it says that the king had granted everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Talking of Ezra. He says in verse 9 of that chapter that it was only a four-month journey because the gracious hand of God was on him. In verse 28 that we just read, the hand of God was on him so he took courage. In verse 18 of chapter 8, it says, because the gracious hand of God was on me, the Levites came and gathered. It says in verse 22 that he had... Proclaim to the king, the gracious hand of God is on everyone who looks to him. That's what he said in faith to the king. And in verse 31, it says, the hand of God was on us. And that brought about protection from bandits and enemies on the journey. And this surely is the place to live. The place where Ezra dwelt, this total devotion to the word of God. And sensitivity to the hand of the Spirit of God side by side. And it's in that place where courage grows. Because courage, you see, is fueled by the truth of God. That's, the, that's the, the energy, if you like, that gives courage birth. But it's secured by knowing the presence of God. You see, courage isn't just about head knowledge. It's about the head knowledge being brought into the reality and life of the spirit. And so Ezra, I think, lays down an example for us all. And his example is of devotion to the word of God, to study it, to do it, and to teach the word of God. But this isn't just an Old Testament thing that we can dismiss as a nice story. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, we're exhorted to do this by Paul. He's talking about God's chosen people who are holy and dearly loved. We're told to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, etc. To bear with one another, to forgive one another, to put all over all of that love. Let peace reign in our hearts. And then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your heart to God. And whatever you do, note, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see the three elements there? Study, do and teach. Study it has to richly dwell in us. Therefore, we have to know it. And then it said, whatever you do in word or deed. So there's a doing to this, having the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And it says to teach one another. This is something we're all called to. You see, this devotion of the, to the word of God must not be separated from knowing the gracious hand of God, from living in his presence, from being led by his spirit, from acting courageously. It is word and spirit. It is paragraphs and presence. It is pages and power. If we learn one thing from Ezra and his example, it's that we must devote ourselves to studying, doing and teaching God's word in the presence of God himself under his gracious hand on our lives. Now, Jubilee regulars, or maybe our regular listeners around the world, will find yourself saying or thinking, here he goes again, he's preached this before, he's always banging on about the Bible and reading it. Yeah, I do. And I don't apologise. In fact, I'm afraid it's all I've got. I don't have anything else to offer. I don't know of any other way of staying close to Jesus than spending time in his presence with his word. I don't know of any other way of filling my mind with his priorities, of helping me order my thinking, of helping me live in a way which brings glory to him than spending time in his presence with his word. So it's all I've got. But it is something that for each of us can start small and grow. So I don't want you to be overwhelmed by this. I don't want you to think, wow, these two chapters, there's so much in there. How could I ever get that out of it? That's not what this is about. My story is that it started small and it grew. This Bible in my hand, the observant ones among you will maybe have noticed that it's not my usual Bible that I preach from. This, in fact, is my first Bible that I got and i got it for christmas when i was 7 i asked for a bible for christmas and sellotape i'd been upset that i couldn't wrap my parents presents i had to borrow their sellotape so that was why anyway i asked for a bible my parents gave me a bible but it wasn't immediate falling in love you see my love of the bible began with some rules i was brought up in a fairly strict home and Each day, I and my three younger brothers had a set of tasks to do before we were allowed breakfast. And they included getting dressed, yeah, brushing our teeth, washing our faces, making our beds, making sure our school bags were packed, ready for school, and crucially, reading our Bible notes. And if we hadn't done any of those things before breakfast, and they were checked before cornflakes were allowed in our bowls... Then we were sent back to do them. And if that meant that we then missed breakfast, well, hard luck. Now, I understand that this could seem quite strict. We can maybe talk about that at another time. Um, But what it did do was elevate the reading of the Bible at the start of the day to the same importance as putting on clothes. And just as I would never dream of leaving the house without getting dressed, so... I never would leave the house without reading my Bible. Reading the word of God became a priority for me. Um, What started out, no doubt, as rules and legalism, I had to do that in order to get my breakfast, over time turned into habit, it turned into discipline, but crucially turned into a love for God's word and his presence. And I can honestly say that there have been very few days in the intervening couple of years since that seventh Christmas of mine when I haven't read my Bible. And that little bit every day accumulates over time. It's not a boast about me. Please don't hear it as that. What I, I say this because it underlines the grace of God on my life, actually. He set my heart on prioritising his word early in my life and I'm so grateful for that. And now I'm not able to do anything different. But I figure that if I feed myself with his truth a little bit every day, then my priorities will begin to be aligned increasingly with his. My emphasis will be more in line with his. My joys will match up more with his. And it is never too late to start. That's what I want to hear you to hear this morning. It's never too late to start. But at the same time, don't delay because you'll miss out. So are you devoted to studying, doing and teaching God's word? Now you may at this point say, well, it's all very well for you, Simon, but you're, you know, you're do this teaching thing and so on. I'm not a teacher. That's not my calling. And anyway, you're looking at Ezra and he was clearly exceptional. Sure, there are people whose primary gifting is to teach And we need those people to help bring us all to maturity. But we can't so easily dismiss Colossians 3.16 that we, we read earlier, where it said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, so you teach and admonish one another. There's a responsibility and a call for all of us to be involved in this. And not only that, but you may well be familiar with the Great Commission. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Those words apply to us as his church. And I don't know whether you noticed, but there's a command in there to teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So there's two things. One is we're called to teach. That's part of making disciples. We teach them to obey. What are they obeying? What Jesus has commanded. We need to know what this book says because that's what we have to teach the nations about. So are you devoted to the word of God? When was the last time you sat down and opened your Bible and read it? Is it your habit, is it your regular practice to open your Bible and expect God to speak to you as you sit in his presence with his word? I'm not going to pretend that this is easy. I'm not going to pretend that every day I leap out of bed and it's just an absolute joy to read his word. There are some bits of this that are hard. There are some times when I don't feel like doing it. But I know that it's good for me. I know that devotion means that I need to do this. So what help do you need in getting into God's word? Ask for that help. Maybe share with other people how you do it. Ask how they do it. What does it look like in your life? But 15 minutes a day, say. Adds up quickly. In a year, that's 91 hours of reading the Bible. It's amazing. His word is so rich, so incredible. It's described in all sorts of different ways by the Bible itself. We looked at that when we looked back at James. There's a light to our path, a lamp to our feet, honey to taste. It's the words of life, it brings hope, it brings comfort, it builds faith. As we see with with Ezra, it develops courage in us, as we see. And at this time when there is so much uncertainty, when things change day by day by day by day, the word of God remains the same. It is an unshakable rock on which we can stand. When all around is sinking sand, his word remains true. And this is a time when we need courage, when God's people need courage. So I urge you to let the fuel of his word and the experience of his presence birth that courage and fan it into flame in you. We sang earlier, stir a passion in my heart. And my prayer for us this morning is that the passion that's stirred in our heart is a passion for God's word, his truth and his presence. And so I'm going to invite you now to commit to that. No pressure. I can't see any of you because you're behind a camera. But if you want to commit to taking the first steps in placing the the word of God central in your lives, then I'd encourage you to stand. Maybe hold your Bible in one hand and place your hand on your heart with your other hand as a sign that you're committed to doing this, that you want to follow the example laid out for us by Ezra of being devoted to God's word. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that and then I'm going to pray for us as a church. And I'm going to pray that this passion will be stirred in us. So I'm just going to stop talking there and pause for a minute while you stand if you want to. As a sign of commitment. Lord God, we are astounded at the example of Ezra who is so committed to your word, so devoted to it, that he spent his life studying, doing and teaching it. And that that shaped all he did. And that courage was birthed from that place of knowing your truth and knowing the gracious hand of God on his life. And God, we want to be people like that. We want to be people who are so full of your truth, so sensitive to your Holy Spirit that you're able to use us in whatever way you ask, whether it be a small way or a big way. And so we ask now as we stand here before you, we commit ourselves again to being devoted to your word. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us on the dark, cold mornings? Would you help us when there's something that's seemingly more interesting on telly? Would you give us a devotion to your word that would help us to put your truth deep into our souls. And Lord, that there would be a passion birthed in us today as we take this step of faith. May we be a a people fueled by your word and desperate for your presence. Amen.